All right, if I could have you return to your seats as we turn now our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. I have to give another um, thanks to John for for filling in for me last week with uh, bronchitis. That was rough. So thank you, John, coming in short notice. We're finally, or I'm finally, back in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, we're going to be looking at the beginning of the story of Gideon. Now there's a lot of text that I'm going to read, a lot, and it's really hard to pay attention for some 39, 40 verses. I get it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it up. I'm going to kind of give an explanation and then we're going to keep doing it. I want you to understand the story and the flow of this story. It's so important. So if you have a Bible or on your phones, um, you can pull it up. Um, We will be looking at Judges chapter 6 today, the story of Gideon. Um, G25, did you guys get your, did everyone in second through fifth grade get their uh, little handout and the little sheet that you can color on? You got it? Good. Let me mention, thank you, whoever, was that Rex or was that Huck? Oh, it's you, Ruthie. Thank you. Kindness is the word we're going to be looking for today. It's on your sheet, but uh, be mindful of that. All right. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. This first section is called Midian Oppresses Israel. Midian Oppresses Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels. They could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Whew, that's tough. So when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of, from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice. So four parts of Gideon's story. This is the first one. Midian oppresses Israel. Here's the second part. God calls Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. That's hard. It gives you an example of how difficult the Midianites made life for the Israelites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in his might of yours. 
and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and the unleavened cakes from the ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Now think about that for a moment. Fire from a rock. This should conjure in your mind the story of Elijah when he's facing off against the priests of Baal when Ahab was, this should, literally should con connect your mind to these things. This is an amazing act of God right here. And look at Gideon's response. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Now the third section, Gideon destroys the altar of Baal doing exactly what God wants him to do. That, that night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it by night. Now when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who's done this? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, that is, if Baal's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbabal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now the fourth scene of Judges chapter 6. The Midianites come once again. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Nephtali and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. 
When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Let me pray. Lord, there's a lot of distractions in our life right now. Perhaps there's even distractions in this room. Certainly there are. But Lord, we come, regardless of where we are, distracted or not, and we plead before you that you, by the power of your spirit, would use your word to accomplish your purposes. Lord, the, the thing that I plead with your spirit to accomplish this morning is that people's mind about you would be changed, that they would come to a greater understanding of your kindness. Do this, Lord. Amen. What's the word Jesus began his ministry with? The one word. I mean, you would think that the one word that Jesus starts off with would be a vitally important word. For those of you that own a business, your product, and the first time you, you kind of enter into the world to say, this is who we are, it's important to communicate that very effectively. That one word is so vital. So what's the one word that Jesus began his ministry with? Do you know? Matthew 3, verse 17. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very first words of Jesus' ministry is a command, and the command is to repent. To repent, simply put, is to turn away from our godlessness and turn to God. I, as a pastor, but more importantly, as a human being, I have found these words to be very challenging at the heart and core of it. Repentance is a great challenge. And the reason is, is we are reluctant to obey Jesus' command because we trust ourselves rather than God. So to turn away from our godlessness means to turn away from self-reliance, self-dependence, and to turn to someone else and to be dependent on them. Repentance is very difficult. And, and we can have this, so, this, 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 this whole like trusting of someone else so hurt by the way that authority figures in our life have, have, have treated us. And I'm not saying all authority figures are, have been bad, but there are authority figures or pastors or parents that just make dependence on someone other than yourself very, very difficult. So why would I turn from myself and my godlessness and turn to God? Why would I do that? The answer is really about the character of the one you're trusting. Do you trust yourself or do you trust God? Romans 2.4 is a verse that I think is really important for us to remember because it gives to us the key to repentance. In essence, Romans 2.4 says this, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. What is it gonna take for you to turn from yourself and depending on yourself to turning to God and to trust him? It's to see his kindness. 
to see God's kindness. Do you believe God is kind? Is he kind? That's the crux of today's message. It's the kindness of God. And whether you believe he is kind, because if you believe he's kind, oh, you will turn from yourself and to him. I don't know if you like Waffle House. I love Waffle House. Amen. And I love them hash browns. And I like them sliced, diced, covered, smothered, all those things, japped, all those things. And then when you get those hash browns, there's just so much goodness in the midst of those hash browns, right? So much goodness. You get a little ketchup on top and maybe some hot sauce. Oof. Mm. The hash brown bowl's off the hook. Judges 6 is like them hash browns with God's kindness. It's smothered, covered, slips, you know, all that stuff with God's kindness. And what I want to do is I just want to bring the kindness of God in Judges 6 to your attention that you might behold the fact that God is kind and that you would trust him and repent. So let's study the kindness of God in Judges 6. Three, three ways that God is kind in this story. Three ways. The first, God shows his kindness in the sin God reveals. God shows his kindness in the sin that God reveals to the Israelites. You recall the Israelite people had come under the oppression of the Midianite people. And for seven years, going on eight, these people in Israel had to leave town, leave their farm fields, and allow another group of people to come in and take it all. It's the reason why Gideon was beating down weed in a wine press. Because they were so afraid to be doing that in, in places where the Midianites would see it. This is a horrible situation. And the Israelites naturally so cried out. If you're oppressed, this is what you do. You cry out. And the Lord heard their cry, just as he had done before. You see, this crying out is not new in the book of Judges. If you have studied it, you know this, this is a cycle. Oppression, crying out, and God answers. But unlike the rest of the book of Judges, this is the first time something unique takes place when the Israelites cry out. Previously, when the Israelites cried out, God immediately sends them a savior, whether it be Othniel, Ehud, or Barak. He sends the savior, and then those saviors knock down whatever that was oppressing Israel. But God doesn't do that here. He does not. No, if you notice in verse 8, that God sends what? A prophet. It's the first time that he does this. He, he doesn't just send the Savior and doesn't give them relief right away. He sends a prophet. And notice what the prophet says. And for those of you that don't know, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord. The prophet who speaks for the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God in his kindness is revealing to the Israelites right here, right now, the sin of their life. And God in his kindness is giving them the truth. Israel was suffering under the Midianite people because of their idolatry. Because they didn't fear the Lord, they feared the gods of those around them. 
And you know what's so fascinating about this? And when I studied this, I, my jaw hit the floor like, oh man, God is faithful to his word. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy, for those that don't know, Deuteronomy is the book that Moses, kind of Moses' last words. And he says, this is what's going to happen. If you obey God, this is what's going to happen. But if you don't obey God, this is what's going to happen. And this is what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 33 through 34. Perhaps you can see the relation between the Israelites and Midian and that. If you have a Bible, you can go there, but I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 28, 33, 34. If the people of Israel were idolatrous, this is what would happen. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. God is just being faithful to his word. He says, if you go after the other gods, if you're unfaithful to the covenant that we made together, this is what's gonna happen, and it happened. And God sends a prophet in his kindness and says, I told you it would happen. I told you this exact thing would happen. And it's the kindness of God to reveal that. It is God's kindness to reveal to Israel the reason for their hardship. Jeremy was in need of help, deep clinical help. He was riddled with anxiety from the pressures of his job and his family life. And this anxiety began to manifest itself bodily. He had tingly hands and sleepless nights night after night. And of course, this affected his work and his home life. Working, he showed up, but he had a hard time focusing and producing to his boss's expectations. Now his boss was on his case, and she wasn't the most gracious of individuals. He's now worried he might lose his job and not be able to pay the bills and do what he wants to do with his family. But again, even with his family, things were difficult. You see, at home, his wife had grown cold and distant, the demands of child rearing on top of, of, top of her job rarely gave Jeremy much time to be with his wife. They were growing apart, and when they did connect, they fought more than they laughed and played and enjoyed one another. So Jeremy needed help. He was absolutely desperate. So one night he Googled a mental health therapist, psychiatrist in his city, and he called the first person he came across that helped and specialized with, with anxiety. It was a psychiatrist. An appointment was scheduled, and Jeremy went. The first session was fine. Jeremy talked for most of it, but didn't get much response from the psychiatrist. They just listened and then prescribed medicine for the anxiety. Jeremy took that prescription, had it filled, and the anxiety and the, the expressions of that anxiety in his body lessened. But the psychiatrist did no deep work, and they did no exploring of family history or, or re the reasons why he was anxious in the first place. He was still riddled with all of those problems. The psychiatrist, he thought, just addressed the symptoms, and that was that. Jeremy now manages his anxiety. His job is only mildly better, but his home life hasn't gotten any better. He wonders to himself if he needs to do more. I tell this fictional story to you to illustrate this one particular point. The psychiatrist did a terrible job in that moment. All they did was dealt with the symptom. They didn't get to the heart of the matter. But God in his kindness gets to the heart of the matter. He doesn't just deal with the symptoms. He goes right to it. You are in the situation you are in, Israel, because of your idolatry. And how kind is God to reveal that? If you really want to experience joy, God's saying, obey me. 
Don't trust the gods of the Amorites. Trust me. Do you see how kind this is? A good psychiatrist would deal with the heart work in that moment. And that's exactly what God does. And that's what God does for us. I want you to know this. This last week, I was at a pastor's retreat in Mississippi, and I led a devotional. This is not a big thing, and it wasn't even that big of a pastor's retreat, but I'm here with pastors. I'm not trying to, this is, whatever. And in this time, what I did is I, I, I said to the pastors, I want you to think for a moment of the promises that Jesus gives in the Gospels. And what I want you to do is just to say those out loud. I'm not doing this to you. Just name a promise of Jesus. And what we'll do is we're gonna sit in this awkward silence of that promise. And so one person, I am with you. So let's sit in that. Let's sit in that. Do we believe God's with you? He promised that he'd be with you. And so we sat in that. And then the next guy came up and it was like a sword being penetrated right into my heart. The pastor said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's sit in that. And I had to sit in that. And I had to deal with the truth of my restless soul. Am I leaning on Jesus and finding rest? In that moment, God revealed to me that I wasn't. God in his kindness revealed to me the things that I look to for rest that don't give rest. God still does it to us. And it is his kindness to reveal these truths to you. Let me put that on you. What is it, that one thing? And it could be that one sin that you've just been ignoring and God is trying to get your attention. Perhaps it's getting your attention. Do not think that it is not, it's God's anger that he's bringing that to your attention. No, it is his kindness. When he reveals to you your sin, it is his kindness. God is kind. He does it with the Israelites. He does it with us. He is kind. There's a second thing. Remember, it's sliced, diced, smothered, covered. There's kindness all up and down, Judges 6. There's a second way we see God's kindness, not just in the sin he reveals. Secondly, we see his kindness in the Savior God raises. Right after the prophet reveals Israel's sin, we find the angel of the Lord approaching a man named Gideon. The angel of the Lord says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The man he's referring to is to Gideon. And Gideon is called by God to save Israel from the Midianite terror. But we quickly find out that Gideon is not what we expected in terms of a savior. In fact, he's not mighty. He's not strong. And his faith is very, very weak. First off, we see that he's incredibly distrustful. Right after God says, I'm with you, he's like, really? Have you seen what the Midianites have been doing? Like, come on. He's talking to the Lord. Nah, nah, he's distrustful. Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But look what's happened to us by the Midianites. Gideon doesn't believe the Lord. He, he trusts what his eyes see. And he, he trusts his heart and what it's experienced. I was just pressing wheat in a wine press. There's no way you're with us, God. So he's incredibly distrustful of God. But then he's apprehensive. Not only is he distrustful, he's apprehensive. I mean, what a savior this guy is. He says, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon looks at himself, and he's like, have you seen me? I mean, these arms can't even bench 125. He looks at his family, and he's like, really? <laughs> he looks at his tribe, and he's like, eh. He's not impressed. 
Me? I can't be used. Why are you coming to me? Look at me. Yet despite his distrust of God's word and his apprehension of the Lord, he persists, God does, in raising Gideon. But Gideon still is not sure. He's continuing to be apprehensive. The Lord says to him, I will be with you. You shall strike down the Midianites. And he's like, "Mm, okay, uh, maybe. Okay, so God, if I have found favor in your eyes, if if you are saying this, then you gotta show me a sign. Don't depart from here until I, I, I bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, the Lord did, I'll, I'll do that. So here we have Gideon, someone who's incredibly distrustful, apprehensive, and requires a sign for God to show him to be faithful to his word. Yet this is the man that God is gonna raise up to save Israel. Let me, let, let me tell you this. God is going to deliver the Israelites from the Midianite terror through this unexpected savior, Gideon, because God is in the business of using unexpected saviors. Why does God use unexpected saviors for his people? He does this to demonstrate his kindness. It's the kindness of God to raise up unexpected saviors. God uses unexpected saviors to shame the strong. If the strong bring victory, then we would look to the strength of those saviors, as will be the case with Samson. But God uses unexpected saviors in his kindness to demonstrate to you and I that he is the one who saves. And we will have no excuse but to look to him and not to the strength of others. It's the kindness of God to show us that truth. He does this with Jesus. Jesus wasn't what you would call attractive. Oh, he gathered a large group of people for a time, but watch in the Gospels how quickly those people run away from him. There were thousands with him, and then Jesus says some things, and it's like, Jesus goes to the disciples, are you gonna depart from me? (laughs) I got 12 now. I had thousands, now I got 12. He didn't have a large following. He was an unexpected savior. On top of that, The salvation that he accomplished didn't come through great victory and strength. It came through his dying, where he was killed on a cross. He's an unexpected savior. It's so outlandish, and it's so bizarre, but it's the only way for this truth to get through our head, that God is the one who does the saving. God does the saving, and oh, how kind it is. I got permission from this sweet little saint in our church to to tell this story, but it's a great story that illustrates this purpose. A few weeks ago, there was a man in the back of this church, and and we had not seen this man before, and and, and thankfully several men in our church came to him and just started talking to him. They're kind of running, and the man didn't help himself. He said this, I'm looking for a child. We don't know this person, and he's looking for a child. Like, so so the men in the church are like, okay, well, we, we gotta do this, and we're like, we... And he was trying to explain the child, and he wasn't doing a very good job. And then, sweet little Kate neighbors saw him. It was her teacher. And she ran up and she hugged him. It was her teacher. And you know what she did? Sweet Kate invited him to church. And she said, Mom, you tell my teacher where we meet, when we meet, and you tell him it's a big church. (laughs) It's a big church. Is that right, Kate? Yeah, that's about right. And he came. She's an unexpected little savior. 
for the church. The last person that, I, like, you know, it takes, you know, as a pastor and a shepherd, you know how hard it is for me to invite people to church? Wow. Amazing amount of faith from her. Unexpected. God loves to use unexpected saviors to do his bidding because it's not about us and our strength. It's about his kindness and his might and his ability to save. I want you to hear this. Doubt not whether you could be used by God. Doubt not your intellect. Doubt not your strength. Doubt not the things in your life that you feel like have disqualified you from even being in the church. Doubt not God thrives in using the weak to shame the strong. He raises up unexpected saviors to do his bidding. This is what he does because it is his kindness to remind us that he's the one that does the saving. Do you know that? Oh, that you would know how kind he is to do that. He uses dunderheads like you and me and dunderheads like Gideon who are apprehensive, mistrustful, and want signs every sign, every chance that they get. God's in the business of raising up unexpected saviors. He's so kind. Sliced, diced, smothered, covered, right? There's kindness going throughout Judges. We've seen the kindness of God in the sin that he reveals. We've seen the kindness of God in this unexpected Savior he raises. Lastly, we see the kindness of God in the sign he renders. Now, you might be going, what does render mean? Those unfamiliar with the word render, Here's what it means. To render something means to reveal it, to demonstrate it, to make it known. And you might be sitting there going, well, why didn't you just use the word reveal again? Come on, pastor, that would have been just simple. And I say, good point. But if I did that, I'd be breaking the pastor's code. That's an important code. You can't break a fill the in the blank code. one time in your outline. So render means reveal, okay? But we're going with render, okay? You follow along with me. Render and reveal are synonyms. So what are the signs that God renders and what does it communicate? Well, it communicates his kindness. God is asked by Gideon on two different, actually three different times to render a sign to show that God is being truthful to his word. So thus the signs that God renders communicates to Gideon the assurance of God's word that he is going to be faithful to the very thing that he has already said. These signs communicate once again that God is kind to a doubtful, mistrustful, apprehensive people. You, you doubt me. Okay, here you go. I'm going to show you that I'm going to be faithful. Let's look at the three signs that, God, that, that Gideon asks of God. The first one involves a meal. Gideon went and prepared it, and when he had brought it to the angel of the Lord, the meal was given, and the angel of the Lord used his staff and touched the rock that was covered in the broth, so it's wet, and the fire consumed it. And this leaves Gideon absolutely stunned. And he says, alas, O Lord God, I have now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He was doubting. But God showed him in this sign that he was being truthful. How kind is that? Secondly, some time had passed between God's encounter with God under the oak tree. And the Midianite army comes once again and now Gideon, the one God has called to fight the Midianites, is having to stand up and call all his brothers and saying, we've got to fight the Midianites. God has called me. He's, he's faithful to his word, I think. That's what he's saying in his mind. 
And he says, all right, guys, let's go. Let's fight. But what does he do once again? Are you really with us? God, are you, are you sure? Can I just put you to the test one more time? And he puts God to a great test. He takes his wool coat, right? And he says, I'm going to lay this wool coat. And the first time, I want the wool coat to be wet and the ground to be dry. And God does it. That's the second test. He's faithful. And yet Gideon is still not convinced, is he? He needs another sign. Okay, one more time. One more time. I need one more time. You've got to render one more sign for me. This night, this night, the wool coat, which was wet, and if you know anything of wool, wool stays wet for long periods of time. It's not going to get dry over one night. He says, the wool coat, I want it to be dry, but the ground to be wet. And what does God do? He does it. And what does Gideon know now? The Lord is faithful to his word. God, in his kindness, renders a sign that indeed he is faithful to his people to love them, to care for them. He loves them. He gives them a sign. Now, you might be sitting there going, that'd be nice. I wouldn't mind a sign that shows that God's love is for me. If, you, if, if that's what you think, you stepped in it, because I'm about to tell you. Jesus has given us two signs to remind us that he is faithful to his word. To my left is the table which says, in remembrance of me, here's where we put the elements of the Lord's Supper each and every week, where we proclaim that the body of Christ is broken and the blood of Christ is shed for you. Today, what we will see is a baptism. Baptisms, praise be to God. A sign that these people belong to God, that they have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And that sign is not just for them, you know that, right? It's a a sign for those of you that have been baptized, that you would see the waters that are poured on them and remember your baptism, that you belong to Christ. Like Paul says, do you not know that you were baptized into Christ Jesus? So when we see the waters, the sign of the baptism placed on these kids today, that you too would remember those waters are my waters because God is kind to us to give us signs to remind us that he is faithful to his word, that he loves us and he cares for us and that he's with us. We need it so bad. We are just like Gideon. We are so apprehensive to trust him we are so distrustful but God in his kindness gives us those signs over and over and over again it's sliced diced smothered and covered all throughout Judges 6 God is kind I don't want this church to break out in tears here in a second but I know that this is a temptation for you guys to do this right now but in high school I learned this awesome worship song I went to high school in the 90s so take that for what it is okay and a, a worship guy that I, that I like, Chris Tomlin, came up with this song called Kindness. And we would get together, me and my high school buddies, at different youth group times, and we would sing this song all the time. And it was just, oh, you know, like in high school, you just, oh, the emotive, oh, yes. So, so I'm going to sing you the chorus of that song. And I don't want, again, I don't want you guys to all break out into tears, okay? There's tissues around here, okay? I know my voice is angelic. Okay? You can make fun of me. I don't care. 
And I've got like this New Yorker voice right now. I can talk like this. Bronchitis. Here's the chorus, but it illustrates the point that I've trying to make the whole time. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Your faithful, Lord, is our design. You know this song? It's your, yeah, I know you don't know this song. It's your beauty, Lord, that makes us stand in silence. Your love, your love is better than life. Oh, I know you guys are weeping. Take care. Beautiful, thank you. Uh, Amen. Uh, I do too, Rex. I like Justin Bieber way better than that too. But you know what? The song, it still hits. You know why the song still hits? Because it's based on Romans 2.4. And Romans 2.4 says, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. We can take the same thing with Judges 6. Here in Judges 6, we have been affronted by the kindness of, his God, of our God. God shows his kindness in the sin he reveals. He shows his kindness in the Savior he raises, and he shows his kindness in the signs he renders. Our God is kind, and there's no two ways about it. And I put the kindness of God before you, and I say, do you trust it? Do you trust it? Let's pray. Our great and merciful God, we give thanks for your kindness. Sometimes the simplest of phrases, O Lord, can definitely uh, be passed through our minds so quickly and we don't even consider it. But in considering the kindness that you displayed all throughout Judges 6, we just need to sit in it. You are kind. God, you are kind. Oh, Lord, like the man who approached Jesus who said, I believe, help my unbelief, I ask that you would indeed help all of our unbelief in here about whether or not you are kind. Oh, Lord, may we trust the kindness that you've displayed in your word, and may we trust you. May we turn from our godlessness and turn to you, a kind God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.